Hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director with CFA Institute, and joining me today to help decipher the complexity of current and potential future conflicts is Dr. George Friedman. Dr. Friedman is founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, which specializes in geopolitical forecasting. Before that, he was chairman of the global intelligence company Stratfor. He's also the author of six books, including two New York Times bestsellers, The Next Decade and The Next 100 Years. So welcome, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much for being here today. Let's start with a check-in on populism. Is it on the upswing, the downswing, or moving sideways? Well, populism is a name for a group you don't like. Uh, it's just not very useful or descriptive. There are many people uh, in many countries who feel that the system has failed them, who feel that the internationalism means that their government can't protect them, and who don't trust their leaders. Um, this happens all the time. It was called the New Deal. Uh, so we have this going on, and this movement is gaining strength because the international economic situation really isn't solving their problems. It's not a surprise that there's such a movement. It's not a surprise that those who oppose it dismiss it as populism. So we're sitting in Germany today. We look south to our southern neighbor, Spain. Barcelona versus Madrid. Who wins? Why? What are the ramifications for both? And what are the ramifications for Europe? We have to put this in a broader context. We've seen Scotland, after two centuries, trying to leave your United Kingdom. And about 45% of the people voted for leaving, so that's pretty substantial. Many of these regions feel they can do better on their own than subordinated to the government they've been part of. And this is part of the general concern. First, nations that are part of the European Union, in Europe. A second, being part of a nation that you can't control. There's a hunger for people to be able to control their own fates. And so they want smaller organizations, smaller countries. And so we have not just there, but elsewhere, Silesia, northern Italy, small movements toward leaving their uh, countries. So you mentioned Scotland, northern Italy. What other secession movements are you watching or to which we should really be paying attention? Well, there are areas that could have them. I'm not sure that we can call them a movement yet, but Northern Italy is one. Uh, Silesia, which used to belong to Germany, is another. Uh, areas of Ukraine that were taken by the Soviets away from Poland, away from Hungary, away from uh, Romania. There is the Hungarian population of Romania. Uh, in fact, there are many borders that some people want to change. And this is the old European problem. This is where wars begin, the desire to shift borders. But that desire comes not necessarily from populations, it, it, from politicians, it comes from people. So I'd like to revisit a question that actually John Malden put to you in 2015. And it stemmed from a conversation the two of you had had about the uh, euro currency. And you said the number one problem that Europe faced and the one that would crack Europe open was immigration. Uh, nationalism was rising and you said immigration would be the final straw. 
And as he pointed out, that was prescient. What led you to that insight? I'm an immigrant. I remember that when I came to the United States, I lived in a place called the Bronx. And I remember the Bronx was a very dangerous place. Immigrants are displaced. Their parents don't know the country. They form groups with people who speak the same language. And the people who live there uh, are, are hard-pressed. The European immigration movement uh, really was all about people who would never live in a migrant neighborhood telling the lower classes to stop being racist and live with them. Having no understanding how violent, potentially, how disruptive, how uncomfortable immigration is. And I say this as an immigrant, and I think back to myself as, as a kid and what I must seem like to the people who live there. What really this was was the arrogance of the elite saying there should be immigration, the immigrants should live with the poorer people, and the poorer people didn't want that were racists. That was going to create havoc. We still, even though we're an immigrant country in the United States, we still have problems with immigrants. I mean, these are real problems, and they're not ones that the people who advocate migration are going to live with. So our poll this morning at the European Investment Conference, we asked, what is the most pressing geopolitical risk facing Europe today? So the majority of the room said increasing frictions between the EU and its member nations. Do you agree with that? Sure. What's your take? Well, after 2008, it was realized that this wasn't a country. It was a treaty organization. And as a treaty organization, the member states would help each other if they wanted to. So when Greece was deeply troubled, the position of other countries was that's the Greek problem. At some point or another, every nation will have problems. If the European Union isn't an organization of equal members, all of whom are helped as if they were one country, then the constant intrusion by Brussels into the internal affairs of these countries What's the quid pro quo? You tell me what I can do, what I can't do, but if I run in trouble, I'm on my own. So because they've never been able to form a federation, because it's just a treaty that they've conceptually developed into some sort of massive entity, the nations still exist. They want to know what the benefit is for them. And if there isn't a benefit, there's nothing to keep them in it. So moving eastward from Europe towards China, uh, you've predicted for over a decade now an implosion in China. What's holding it up? We've had the implosion. That's why there's a dictatorship now. The dictatorship was created as a measure to try to cope with the decline in the economy, the decline in exports, uh, the tensions between various regions in China, and so on. So what I said was, there's going to be an implosion in China. It will be handled either by regionalism or by dictatorship. We have a dictatorship. We don't know it'll work. But they did not move to overthrow Deng Xiaoping's concepts because everything was fine. They made this move because they were trying to cope with some profound problems. 
So I want to pick up on something that you just said. Indeed, two years ago, you said China could go in one of two directions. The country could fragment, as it did through most of the century before World War II, or it could devolve into dictatorship. And you said, and I, and I quote here, what I see happening in China is the imposition of a dictatorship by Xi Jinping. So if we fast forward to October 2017 and the Communist Party Congress and Xi emerges even more powerful, what does this look like in five years' time? Well, he's made a number of concessions. He's agreed that the growth rate is never going to go back to what it was. Uh, he's agreed that poverty in the interior of China is a major problem. He said that it'll be 50 years before China is a world-class military power. He's admitted all these problems. Now, he's admitted in a very clever way that it sounds triumphant, but he's got to use So the answer is, in five years, if he solves these problems, or is on his way to solving these problems, he's fine. But the first problem he has is this. The coast is wealthy. Raising Erasing poverty in the interior means transferring wealth from the coast to the interior. And that's the first thing he has to overcome. Because the coastal interests are going to resist. He has to force them to do, and these are very powerful interests. So yes, he's declared the dictatorship, he's won this round heavily, now comes the real game. So as we heard today from the, the audience Q&A, people are concerned about North Korea. Is war the most likely outcome? At the moment, I would argue that it is likely that we reach a settlement with North Korea. I think the real hanging issue is, will the North Koreans permit on-site inspection, which the United States is going to ask for? And they're probably going to resist. But uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis has made it very clear, the United States is not going to live in a world where North Korea has the option of striking the United States with nuclear weapons. And that's what an ICBM means. So if the North Koreans resist, I think it's pretty likely the United States will take military action, no matter how difficult, painful, and costly it is. It is cheaper than accepting a possible nuclear strike on Los Angeles. Uh, therefore, the decision is really up to the North Koreans. Now, I think that having reached the conclusion that it's up to them and the U.S. is serious, and that's been the difficulty to convince them that this is really going to happen, I think they'll decide that they probably will suffer more from an American attack than the Americans, and they'll make an agreement. So it looks at the moment, but... So looking across uh, to Russia, are you concerned about U.S. sanctions on Russia? Well, my, my concern is this. Russia has been badly hurt by the decline of oil prices. Its ability to maintain its stability is in question. Russia is a country that has thousands of nuclear missiles. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell, they were all moved to Russia because Russia was a responsible state. It is a responsible state. So we have to ask as a very practical question uh, the issue of how far we want to press the Russians. Do we want to risk you know, an economic downturn that turns into something like Yeltsin's Russia? And I think my I would argue that Russia does not really represent a military risk to the West at this point. 
Two years ago, I would have said it differently, but I think at this point, it just isn't going to be able to do it. And therefore, pressing against the wall at this point uh, carries more dangers than solving problems. So we're going to switch gears slightly here. Uh, you said that you draw your greatest inspiration from Hegel, uh, the German philosopher. You also read Thucydides, and for our viewers, that's the ancient Greek historian and author of the history of the Peloponnesian War. Why these two? Well, Hegel, because he argued that history was predictive, that if you understand how it will unfold, if you understand reason, you'll understand how it will unfold, and you'll also understand the role of politicians. That a politician does not make history, history makes politicians. That the world historical figure, as he called him, is someone who really understands what he has to do, is not out there making it. You know, we have a fetish in the West of leadership. You know, that this leader will decide to do this or that or the other things. He's trapped by the reality that he's in. A good leader does what he has to do, what he's constrained to do. And so he taught me that. Thucydides taught me the importance of geography, where he explains Sparta fighting Athens and the strength of the Spartans being that they're poor, the weakness of the Athenians that they're rich. And they're rich because they're a coastal city, they trade with the world, and Sparta is just a tough, hard, and that's why they beat this, the Athenians. So the conventional wisdom is the richer you are, the better you are at war. And he really showed me how to think about geography, how geography shapes things, but also how it just surprises you that what you think should be true isn't. So you have a seventh book coming out in 2018, The New American Century, Crisis, Endurance, and the Future of the United States. Can you give viewers just a very brief preview of some of the issues that you analyze in the book? Well, what I'm analyzing in the book is the fact that there are cyclical crises the United States faces, and our biggest crisis is an institutional one. So in World War II, we created a set of institutions where the government was deeply involved in society, where it waged war continually, and so on. That was 75 years ago, 73 years ago. Um, it's one-third of the history of the United States ago. The system has become obsolete. And so the United States is sort of staggering. The election of Donald Trump is interesting because he was elected precisely because he wasn't a politician. He was elected because he didn't uh, carefully choose every word. And for part of the United States, about half, that was enormously refreshing. For part of the United States, it was appalling. So at this point, we've not yet reached the stage where those institutions will be transformed. But we have reached a point where the U.S. is paralyzed. Uh, one side saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with the multilateral organizations and NATO and everything else, and one side saying, why do we need it? And both sides hating each other. So final question, the year ahead, after all, you are in the forecasting business. So when you write up your detailed forecast for 2018, 
What are some of the hot spots or perhaps the lukewarm spots that may become the hot spots that will appear on page one? I think the pivot in the next year is going to be uh, the American economy. Uh, we don't normally go for a recession more than 10 years. It's been eight years. And we're beginning to see the signs of a recession. Recessions are actually good. They create a discipline in business. The problem is going to be that the United States is the largest importer in the world. And the exporters are hurting terribly because there's no one to buy their goods. Middle East doesn't buy. Uh, the Russians can't buy, the Chinese have cut back. If we go into recession and we are unable to buy, uh, that's going to have a ripple effect, particularly in Europe and Germany, uh, which will be destabilized by their heavily dependent 50% of their GDP comes from exports. Um, other countries that export are going to be hurt by Germany's inability to buy their goods. So I think the most important thing we're looking at next year is probably late next year, the beginnings of a recession, and that's going to ripple through the world very hard. Dr. Friedman, it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you for watching. Copyright 2018, CFA Institute, All Rights Reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.